0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. Hey, it's our yearly Ig Nobel's episode.
1: That's right. This is a tradition for us. These awards uh, go out uh, generally, what, mid to late September we always come back and hit them in early November after we're done with all of our Halloween content, and it's just a you know a great way to dive back in to uh, to serious scientific study. Uh, <laughs> and I'm not joking because, uh, granted, these are awards that that's, that celebrate and highlight. Studies that may seem a bit absurd and a bit a bit comical, but generally speaking we 're dealing with, with with actual research that doesn 't at least in some way expand our scientific knowledge of the world right even if it 's funny, you can usually learn something interesting from it right. So the basics on the Ig Nobel, obviously it's a play on the Nobel Prize. Uh, these have been awarded each year since 1991 by the Annals of Improbable Research, which is uh, a publication that uh, you know prides itself on seeking out the absurd and the humorous and the whimsical within the realms of legitimate scientific research. The purpose of the award, according to the editors, uh, is to, quote, to honor achievements that first make people laugh and then make them think. Furthermore, they stress that the 10 prizes aren't necessarily meant to pass judgment on the winners. Instead, the official website emphasizes that the prizes, quote, celebrate the unusual, honor the imaginative, and spur people's interest in science, medicine, and technology. And uh, the key individual in all this is editor Mark Abrams, who, again, has been heading this up since 91.
0: Now, in some previous years, we've covered all of the prizes awarded. Uh, We're not going to be doing that this year. We just wanted to pick out a selection and focus on uh, a few of them that seemed fun or interesting for one episode this year. We might come back with multiple parts in in future years, but this year we're just sticking with the one. Right. And if you want the
1: full list of winners, then you should go to www.improbable.com. Now this year's ceremonies happen entirely online on Thursday, September seventeenth, um, and uh, yeah, let's let's dive right in. Let's
0: see what which one are we going to discuss first? Oh, we, did, we've we've got to start with a knife made of feces because that seems like the perfect metaphor for the year twenty twenty is just being <laughs> menaced with a blade of of excrement. Blade of excrement, it shall be.
1: This was the materials science prize, and it does concern a frozen feces knife. Uh, now, to to put this in the correct um, you know, frame of reference, so to really prepare you for what we're specifically talking about here, I'm going to read a segment here from Shadows in the Sun, Travels to Landscapes of Spirit and Desire. Uh, this is a book that uh, came out in 1998 by Wade Davis, a Canadian, U.S.-Colombian cultural anthropologist, ethnobotanist, author, and photographer. Quote, There is a well-known account of an old Inuit man who refused to move into a settlement. Over the objections of his family, he made plans to stay on the ice. To stop him, they took away all his tools. So in the midst of a winter gale, he stepped out of their igloo, defecated, and honed the feces into a frozen blade, which he sharpened with a spray of saliva. With the knife, he killed a dog. Using its rib cage as a sled and its hide to harness another dog, he disappeared into the darkness. Whoa. Now that's... that's. That's, that's a pretty awesome little tale there.
0: That's beyond Rambo levels of of improvised tools. I mean, that's yeah. that's good stuff.
1: Beyond MacGyver, beyond Rambo. uh, Yeah. So this is this is the account or one of two accounts that the study we're going to get to is going to deal with. Uh, I do that. I thought I would point out, though, for uh, longtime listeners of the show, you might recognize the name Wade Davis. Uh, Davis uh, has written numerous books over the years, but he was perhaps most famously the author of 1995's The Serpent and the Rainbow. Um, which, as we discussed in the show before, put forward the hypothesis that uh, tetrodotoxin is linked to the zombie legend in Haiti, uh, a hypo- and a hypothesis that uh, proves somewhat controversial. Uh, mm-hmm. This is a nonfiction book, but it served as the inspiration for the 1988 Wes Craven film, which was just an infamously troubled production, filmed on location in Haiti, starring Bill Pullman, uh, Paul Winfield, uh, and I can't remember if there was anybody else really of note in that, but... Um, Shadows of the Sun, on the other hand, collects various essays by Davis concerning various parts of the world, including the Inuits of the Arctic Circle. But let's get back to this poop blade. Okay. So, material sciences aside, we'll get into the material sciences here. This seems like a a perfectly great legend of a man so rugged and committed to life on the ice that robbed of his tools. He will forge a blade from his own excrement and use it to cut a sled and harness from one dog and then lash that sled to another dog and then just escape into the wilds.
0: Right. It's sort of the ultimate story
1: of of self-reliance and resourcefulness. But it does raise the question. Is this possible? Could you actually <laughs> do this, right? Because what works in legend doesn't necessarily work in the real world, but that's where this study enters the picture, to shed light on the legend and see if it melts uh, or see if it uh, holds its form. Um so I'm not going to read the entire title of the paper just yet because it gives away the answer. But essentially, this was uh, looking to uh, it, was, it had to do with experimental replicate replication of a knife made from frozen human feces. And it was uh, by Aaron et al, published in the Journal of Archaeological Science in October of 2019. Uh, that is Meaton I. Aaron, Associate Professor of Anthropology and Director of Archaeology at Kent State University. Uh, he's the, the key investigator in this.
0: Uh, He's also the one whose poop they will use. Now, this is interesting because it ties into some stuff we've talked about on the show recently, for example, in the Pycrete episode. Pycrete is – if you didn't check that one out yet, that was a lot of fun. But it's a story about an attempt during World War II to manufacture a sort of floating armored aircraft carrier out of what would have been a mixture of wood pulp and ice. And it kind of gets you considering the different possibilities of what kinds of tools and even structures or vehicles you can make out of various types of frozen material. Because the material properties of uh, water with saturated wood pulp in it are, are very different when frozen than just plain water.
1: Yeah. And and really, that the work we did uh, researching PyCrete, I mean, it makes you think, well, maybe this could work, right? Because what is fecal matter? But, you know, it has water in it, obviously, but it also has these these different uh, <laughs> some depending fibers, on the diet. Maybe, yeah. yeah. There's going to be some other stuff in there that could potentially add to the, the structure and keep it from shattering. Uh, um, yeah. I mean, it, it's one of these things that sounds potentially plausible. And, and again, that's where the experiment comes into play.
0: I mean, it does make you wonder what should you eat if you want your fecal matter to be the most knife ready. <laughs> yeah, of course. This also we mentioned. I think Mortal Kombat
1: Sub Zero, uh, the the, char- the character, the the warrior uh, in the video games and the movies that that, in addition to freezing people solid and shattering them, also crafts magical weapons out of uh, out of magical ice. Yeah. Uh, so really, this is this is essentially fodder for a new Mortal Kombat character, like the poopier version of Sub Zero. Okay, I got to know the answer. All right. Well, let's work our way up to the answer. So okay. As the authors point out, Davis's account in the book uh, was attributed to one Olajuk um, Nar who uh, who said this about his own grandfather in the 1950s. Um, I mean, the grandfather would have lived in the 1950s. That's the the idea here. Now, Davis himself admitted that he initially took this story as a humorous one and admits that it might well be more legend than reality. Uh, but it was subsequently repeated in various texts. And, uh, and Dave, but Davis did say that, well, OK, there is an account we can look to that could potentially back this up. And it's an account by Danish explorer Peter Fruchin, who lived 1886 through 1957. And uh, uh, Fruchin claimed to have used a similar tactic. His account was that he dug a pit uh, to sleep in, this is in the Arctic, and awoke to find himself snowed in. So remembering seeing frozen dog excrement that looked pretty solid, he he got an idea. He decided to defecate in one hand, uh, shape it into a chisel, and then wait for the fecal matter to freeze hard enough to then use that chisel to dig his way out.
0: I, don't, I mean I don't know, but for some reason my my skeptical and tinny are sort of perking up that something about this story seems wrong. I too am doubtful
1: um, <laughs> I, I, I was doubtful as well so uh basically, this is where the um th- this is where the experiment comes in because again, just because you have these two cases one is is more presented as a legend, and one also might be an exaggerated or simply made-up account. Uh, there's just no way of knowing. It's not like, f- in either case, someone kept the poop dagger, and it was, you know, presented. Right. Yeah. So that means you've got to make your own poop da- dagger. And that's exactly <laughs> what they did in this, um, uh, this Kent State University study. So, first of all, I just want just to let everybody know, no dogs are cut up in this experiment. They used pig hide, muscles, and tendons to stand in for dog flesh. But the poop, well, that's a little too essential to the experiment. They had to use actual human fecal matter. But they also needed to make sure it was fecal matter in keeping with the diet of an Inuit living on the ice in the 1950s.
0: Oh, okay. So what would this diet most likely consist of?
1: Well, this is what they say in the study. Quote, in
0: order to procure
1: the necessary raw materials for knife production— one of Us, and then they include the, in parentheses, M-I-E, for uh, Meaton I. Aaron, uh, the, again, the um, Associate Professor of Anthropology and Director of Archaeology at Kent State. Uh, went on a diet with high protein and fatty acids, which is consistent with an Arctic diet for eight days. The Inuit do not only eat meat from maritime and terrestrial animals, and there were three instances during the eight-day diet uh, that MIE ate fruit, vegetables,
0: or carbohydrates. Okay, so this is a diet that is not exclusively meat-based, but is largely meat-based right yeah more more meat be- based than
1: um, than aaron would usually uh, uh, engage with so on the fourth day he begins the collection process uh, and this continues for 5 days the fecal samples were formed into knives via ceramic molds but they were also molded by hand into quote hand shaped knives and all of these were stored in a freezer wow hopefully clearly marked
0: who who molded them by hand uh,
1: I don't know that the study was specific on that matter. I, I'm, ass- I'm assuming that uh, it's MIE himself that mm-hmm. is doing most of the molding and the handling of, of his own poop blades. Um,
0: um, maybe this is unreasonable uh, taboo enforcement. It seems like weird to make somebody else handle your frozen feces.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, w- I would agree. But I don't know. In the name of science, you know, with, with the, you know the appropriate uh, <laughs> uh, the scientific uh, restraints right. in place, you know, it, it might be okay. So, when it came time to put the knives to the test, they were taken out of the freezer, they were sharpened once more, and then they were turned to even colder temperatures via dry ice to ready them for the task and And part of this is really as um as the um, the investigators went on to, to state like this was trying to create the best possible conditions for this uh test to potentially work, like really to give a, just make sure everything was just as frozen as possible um and uh, and so they decided – then they they put them to the test. Uh, they started with the toughest challenge, however, and that's the hide. Because uh, they, they figured, well, if the knives fail to cut through the hide, you can basically go ahead and call it a day. Because it doesn't matter if they can cut through fat, uh, etc. Here's what happened. Both varieties of fecal blade – that means the the ones that were just put in the mold, the ones that were, that were formed by hand – both of them failed to cut the hide.
0: Oh, your yeah. knife sucks.
1: Now, I know what you're thinking. Maybe they, they got the poop consistency wrong. Well, they thought of that. They'd forged um, a blade from Western diet poop, but that failed as well. They also went ahead and tried the blades out on a layer of fat underneath the hide and, quote, only the shallowest of slices could be produced and the knife edge still
0: quickly melted and deteriorated. Yeah, I would imagine that this would be a problem, that uh, that it just melts too fast to be effective at cutting. I mean, I, I bet you probably could get a somewhat sharp edge on it, but how would you hold the edge for very long? Because as soon as you start sawing into something, it's probably just going to get heated up by friction and then melt away and be blunt.
1: Yeah, because – I mean, because that's, that's the, the one of the keys here is that the legend is not a story of someone who stabbed somebody in the eye with an icicle, you know? Right. It's the story of someone – who butchers a dog and processes its body to make raw materials. Now, the researchers stressed that by depending, again, on very cold materials instead of uh, fresh kills, uh, they gave the experiment the best chance of success, but the blades still failed to match up to the legend. Now, they also drive home that perhaps additional tests with additional fecal matter samples would be <laughs> ideal if anyone else wants to continue this this great work. But, uh, you know, I don't know. Like, what would be the additional, um, you know, dietary um, uh, formula for fecal matter that would make a, a better poop knife?
0: I don't know. I mean, honestly, now that I'm thinking about it, I don't even know if, like, you could make a very good knife out of piecrete, right? Yeah. Because A knife depends so much on having a a very sharp blade to work very effectively. And while piecrete is really good at preventing cracks from propagating across the length of it, and it's pretty good at melting more slowly than regular ice, I still think the sharp edge of a piecrete knife would probably melt pretty quickly, too quickly to be useful. Hmm.
1: So it seems like you'd be better off if you made a a, a piecrete or a frozen poop warhammer, right? Right, yeah. Okay. Um, now, the uh, in addition to, you know, contemplations uh, uh, regarding different diets, uh, they also contemplate, you know, the idea that, OK, you have this saliva aspect of the original uh, legend, right, uh, that he sprays saliva onto the poop knife and then forges it. But they're doubtful that that would really make a difference. Either they point to the work of McCall and Pelton from 2010, who looked into the idea of whether humans in cold regions used flaked and chipped ice for butchery tools. And they, too, found that Melting occurred with these when these objects came into contact with warm bodies, and that they also melted during use. So, um, you know, again, you're coming down to a, I think a case where if you're talking about creating something out of out of ice or frozen poop, and you're attempting to use it as a butchery tool, mm-hmm. um, you're just asking too much of the material.
0: Yeah, for frozen material, the the effectiveness of a knife blade depends on it being very thin. Basically, the extent to which it's effective is based on its thinness and being thin would make any frozen material likely to melt because, you know, it's harder to maintain the, the cold temperatures. It's just going to acquire heat from the environment and from friction too fast.
1: Now, you might ask yourself, okay, but seriously, why was this necessary research? Uh, I think they have a nice uh, summary of this in the paper itself. I just want to read this. Quote, societal narratives and policies are often constructed from anthropological and scientific claims. While the narrative that indigenous and prehistoric people are technologically resourceful and innovative is widely supported, these narratives suffer when an untested claim is used to support it. If one untested claim is used to support a stance, even if that stance is otherwise supported, ethical or just, then there is no logical reason why a second untested claim cannot be invoked. The use of untested claims then becomes the norm and can be used to support stances that are beneficial to society as well as those that are harmful. Anthropologists must actively seek out unsupported claims, assumptions, rumors, and urban legends, and by testing them ensure any narratives that follow are as sturdy as possible.
0: Right. So there are enough true stories about resourcefulness and ingenuity among the Inuit peoples that you don't need like physically impossible stories gunking up the works. Right. And by investigating a story
1: like this, you can you can make that that decision. Okay, looks like we file this more under legend and mythology as opposed to a a true tale of survival. Right. So that's the poop knife. Uh, I I thought that one was really entertaining, and yeah. and again, it it does feel kind of fitting for twenty twenty. But also, it's just a really cool story. Uh, and and I do encourage anyone out there who is a dungeon master or a, or a Dungeons and dragons player uh, keep this story in mind I think this one will prove useful especially if you're adventuring in somewhere like Icewind Dale or something um, uh, yeah use try and use the poop knife uh, maybe your dungeon master uh, has heard this episode mm-hmm. or has read this study follows the Ig Nobel prizes and they'll shoot you down but you know Dungeons and Dragons is a legendary environment so maybe you'll get away with it
0: you have acquired the blade of Latrinius <laughs>
1: All right, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we'll discuss another selection from the 2020 Ig Nobel Prizes. All right, we're
0: back. What have you got for us, Joe? Okay, it's time to talk about professional entomologists who are afraid of spiders. (laughs) Uh, So this winning article, this was from the 2020 Entomology Prize. It's by Richard S. Vetter, called Arachnophobic Entomologists, When Two More Legs Makes a Big Difference, published in American Entomologist in 2013. Now, the author of this study, Richard Vetter, is now retired, but during his career, he was an entomology research associate at uh, UC Riverside. And a quick look around the Internet at photos of this guy and interviews with him suggests that he is some kind of arachnophiliac. He clearly (laughs) loves spiders. I found a picture of him with a spider crawling on his eye, and he's got this big smile on his face. I legitimately thought this was a picture of Dennis Hopper when I first saw it. Like, I thought it was like
1: a younger Dennis Hopper <laughs> the handlebar with a spider mustache. on his face. Yeah. yeah,
0: He's a warrior poet in the classic sense. <laughs> uh, so this paper is about arachnophobia, the the fear, sometimes irrational fear of spiders, which is a very common phobia. And uh, I've read a couple of articles featuring interviews with Vedder, and he sort of tells some personal stories that got him thinking about the subject of arachnophobia among entomologists. So a few of these stories uh for one thing he tells a story of one time sitting down at a lunch table with colleagues and producing a brown recluse spider that was sealed in a plastic bag and he says one of his colleagues an aquatic entomologist absolutely quote vaporized just <laughs> gone from the room all the way down the hall in 5 seconds. And then he says another time he was with an entomologist colleague and he opened the lid on a specimen jar that had a black widow in it. And he said that this guy in the room literally jumped backwards, quote, like the spider was going to decapitate him. Now, this is kind of surprising to me because you would sort of expect that entomologists would be pretty much immune to irrational spider fear. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, uh, quick note on the terminology. Entomologists are a specialized branch of zoologists. They study insects. The researchers who specialize in arachnids, like spiders, ticks, and mites, are called arachnologists. But I think there's clearly some crossover. Like, it looks like Vetter was technically an entomologist by title at his institution, but his passion seemed to be with spiders. And uh, I think you'd just kind of assume that attitudes about insects and attitudes about spiders, since they're both small arthropods, would be pretty correlated, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm of two minds on this, because on one hand, yeah, it just seems like if you're cool with devoting your life to, to one variety of creepy crawly, mm-hmm. then you're good with all creepy crawlies. But then I think to my, you know, my own self, and I'm like, well, you know, I'll get down and look at something like, a, you know, a centipede or even a spider, but I'm a little wigged out by something like a, a palmetto bug or a roach, you know? So oh.
0: Yeah. this is interesting. There's somebody who I think is the inverted version of you in this study, Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So we'll get to that in just a minute. Uh, But anyway, I can think of at least a couple of reasons, at least for me, why why I wouldn't really expect entomologists who have powerful, irrational fears of spiders. One is self-selection in the profession, right? Like, how many people with an existing, overwhelming fear of tiny arthropods would go into a research field where you handle tiny arthropods all the time? And then the other thing I would just think of would be conditioning. Even if you start off kind of afraid of spiders, wouldn't constantly working with insects and various types of small arthropods just sort of blunt that fear over time?
1: Yeah, it's kind of hard to imagine like a Dickensian tale where uh, this uh, this this kid enters uh, entomology, but he's just following in the in his father's footsteps. It's just the family <laughs> business
0: of <laughs> of studying insects, right? Well, in a weird way, that almost does seem like a a Dickensian kind of comic character, like yeah. <laughs> an entomologist who's terrified of of insects or something. Uh, but anyway, there, there is a difference. Spiders are not exactly insects, so uh, so let, let's pursue this a little farther. So, Vetter, based on these anecdotes from his colleagues, he decided to conduct a survey that was open to professional entomologists. And he solicited responses from self-declared arachno-adverse researchers from the readership of the journal American Entomologist. So it's very worth noting that this is not like a huge random sample of the field. This is self-selected. This is a self-selected sample of researchers who were like, yes, you know, I raise my hand. I'm afraid of spiders. So important to keep that in mind. This is not going to be like indicative of the field as a whole, but at least it's showing you what some people in the field are thinking. And this survey included a standardized psychology test known as the fear of spiders questionnaire or FSQ, as well as qualitative reports where people could explain their experiences in plain language. And the top line result of the survey was like, yeah, there are some professional entomologists who are terrified of spiders. Uh, So First, uh, I just want to talk about a few general findings from the existing literature on arachnophobia, and this is something that Vedder summarizes later in his 2013 paper. So one of the things is that arachnophobia usually in in the general public starts in childhood, though it's at sometimes different stages depending on who you ask. If you ask parents about their children, it seems to start in girls at an average age of 4.7. And this research was specifically in girls. I don't know if it would be different or the same with boys. But uh, if, but however, if so, parents say it starts at 4.7, if you ask adult women about their own arachnophobia, when that started, they tend to give an average age of 9.4 years, but with a pretty big margin of error. So if those numbers are at least somewhat accurate, that's kind of interesting because it might mean that people display fear of spiders that like can be observed by others that parents can observe before they themselves recall being aware of the phobia.
1: Hmm.
0: Though qualitatively, many arachnophobes cannot recall an age when their fear began. A lot of them just say, I've always been afraid of spiders as long as I can remember. You know, there wasn't an inciting incident, though for a few ca- for a few cases in the survey, there was a reported conditioning event. Uh, on average, women are more likely than men to report arachnophobia, and the intensity of arachnophobia tends to be higher in younger people than in older people. I thought that was kind of interesting. Hmm. Spider fear is higher in people whose parents also had spider fear, and it's especially correlated between mothers and daughters. And many arachnophobes rate high on measures of disgust sensitivity, which is an interesting uh, psychometric category. It's basically like how easily you get grossed out by various kinds of things. And th- that trait is, seems to be interestingly correlated to all kinds of other stuff, You know, even like political psychology and stuff. Now, there's a lot of interesting speculation as to why spiders trigger fear reactions in so many people when in reality, spiders don't usually represent much of a threat to survival. They're a relatively minor threat as far as animals in the environment go. Um, We've talked about some of these speculations about causes for arachnophobia before, um, but – Interestingly, some research has tried to understand not just arachnophobia itself, but which particular features of spiders trigger it the most, because there are different spiders with different characteristics, physical and behavioral. So, like, what kinds of spiders are the worst and which features of spiders bother people the most? Uh, And studies have found that the things people really don't like about spiders when they don't like them is unpredictability. So there's this perceived lack of control over spiders. Uh, People really don't like the fast, jerky movements and their ability to suddenly appear in places where they weren't seen before. Uh, There was one entomologist actually in this study uh, that Vedder did who said that they would rather, quote, scoop up a handful of maggots with an ungloved hand than get close enough to a spider to kill it. (laughs) Mm. And now you might wonder why there. Well, they give a rationale, actually. This respondent said maggots don't sneak up on you and jump in your hair. Now, I would say probably spiders don't usually do that either. But uh, I guess the, the thing that causes the fear here is that they at least in theory could.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're you're generally going to encounter maggots in a in exactly one type of place. Mm-hmm. Um, where, yeah, if you're you're more inclo- you're more likely to encounter spiders at various parts points in your house. Uh, they're 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 more likely to be on the
0: move. Uh, maggots are not going to be on the move. That's right. And, and the last uh, things about spiders that people disliked the most were physical features, including the number of legs. For some reason, people don't like the number of legs. They don't like, (laughs) they don't like hairiness and they don't like having fangs or being able to bite. Uh, And then furthermore, uh, Rob, I just included for you to look at here, a chart of uh, within Vetter's survey he charted respondent scores of likability for a variety of different animals. It looks like just a, a few dozen random animals, including like butterfly, horse, snake, mouse, earwig, mosquito, spider. And you can, uh, you can really see that the worst thing, even worse than a spider, and I think I would agree, is a tick. Oh
1: yeah, I we're very much on, on the same page there as far as ticks go. Um, far worse than a spider. Uh, like the tick is actively seeking you out, uh, right. uh, t- Trying to, to to attach to your body, uh, drink your blood, and potentially uh, share some pathogens with you at the same time. Right. Um, you know, much like the mosquito uh, that it, that ranks um, beneath the spider. But uh, yeah, it's an interesting chart to look at because you th- see things on there that I. You know, certainly would expect to see like the cockroach, for example, Um, the slug, I guess, you know, I, I I've made my peace with slugs, but I used to find them more repellent. Um, but then eels, like, are people really grossed out by eels? I guess they're kind of weird looking.
0: Well, I mean, this is a small survey of people who self-selected as saying they were afraid of spiders or disliked spiders. So why
1: is the squirrel so high on the, on the list? Like the squirrel is rated um, what, worse than a bear. Worse but, than a or let's see. Or is that worse than a um, worse, worse than an earthworm? I mean, more but better di- than a
0: bear, more disliked than a bear. But once you get into all of the like mammals down here, except for the mm-hmm. rat, they're all on the positive side of the scale. So like the halfway point of the scale, the only things that on average were hated more than half were maggots, scorpions, rats, mosquitoes, spiders, and ticks. <laughs> but one thing I, you know, I'll say about hating ticks is that uh, I, I think that's an important case where like you're gut level disgust also lines up with your rational knowledge, because I bet a lot of these entomologists hate spiders, but they know it's wrong to hate spiders. They're like, you know, I can't argue with my gut feelings, but I just know that I shouldn't hate spiders. They're not actually bad with ticks. I mean, the heart and the head are in the same place,
1: right? There are just a lot of legitimate, uh, scientifically proven reasons to to
0: not be crazy about ticks. But anyway, so to get into the results of Vetter's study, uh, how do these self-reported arachno-adverse entomologists uh, differ from the general public in terms of spider fear? Well, actually, there are a lot of similarities. So he found that for the general public and for these arachno-adverse entomologists, the arachnophobia begins in childhood, generally before respondents have even considered entomology as a career path. So these people are not, like, acquiring spider fear in adulthood. Uh, Vetter says that the fear of spiders questionnaire scores between the genders were not statistically significantly different. Uh, didn't seem to be a major gender difference among the entomologists. Uh, adverse entomologists seem to dislike spiders for most of the same reasons as general arachnophobes do. They don't like the hairiness, the fangs, the number of legs it's still on the number of legs. Eight is bad. Uh, unpredictability and fast, sudden movements. But also, interestingly, Vetter believed that there is a lower prevalence of disgust reactions to spiders among entomologists. Uh, the, the entomologists who don't like spiders are afraid, but they're not as grossed out as the general public. And then to read a couple of his final observations, quote, one difference from general arachnophobes that may have been present but not specifically documented in the classic literature is that several entomologists mentioned being tormented by family members who capitalized on the respondents' fear of spiders. That's that's not nice. Don't don't torment <laughs> your family members with spiders. Um Another is, uh, quote, another difference is that arachnophobes in the general public assign anthropomorphic cognitive behaviors to spiders, such as vengefulness or purposeful surveillance. Whereas the general impression I received from the arachno-adverse entomologists was that they realized their fears or dislikes were paradoxical, even though they could not explain the reasoning behind them. And this gets to this
1: gets to the, you know, the, the, the non-rational aspect of, of phobia, I imagine here, you know, the, the idea that it's you know, on one hand, you can you can rationally discuss why you shouldn't feel this way and yet still have these feelings.
0: Yeah, totally. And now there was one last thing that I noticed or I, I at least thought was interesting. Vetter did not draw attention to this himself, but it stuck out to me. Some of these arachno adverse entomologists seem to display what I would guess is an unusually high level of affinity for certain insects. For example, one reported having owned a Madagascar hissing cockroach as a pet when they were a child, <laughs> uh, which is probably not normal for many kids, but uh, you can kind of see how a kid who has a cockroach as a pet might want to grow up to become an entomologist. And other ones, rated animals like cockroaches and maggots among their most liked animals in that big list of animals we were just talking about. Uh, And in the averages from all the respondents, the top three most liked animals of the entire list, even outperforming dogs, horses, porpoises, and other commonly charismatic animals, uh, the top three were all insects, butterflies, dragonflies, and ladybugs. The entomologists in this survey hated spiders, but loved those three insects. So could it be that some of these entomologists are also influenced to dislike or be afraid of spiders because they're so fond of the spider's prey animals? I wonder.
1: Huh, that that is interesting. Um, Because when you watch a spider do its thing, that is, how do you emotionally respond to that? Because uh, I think I I may have shared this on the show already, but a few weeks back, maybe like a month back, uh, there was this enormous spider web on my front porch, mm-hmm. and I was enjoying watching it, watching the the spider set up shop there and repair it. And then I happened to go out there and find some manner of little stink bug on the pillar right next to the um, to the web, and so on a, on a whim I flicked it and into the the web. And then instantly the vibrations went through the web, the spider uh, rushed out and immediately uh, wrapped up the struggling uh, bug inside the, uh, you know, the, 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 the binds of the of the, the spider web. It was fabulous to watch. Uh, and, and that was my emotional reaction to it. It was like, oh, well, this, this was great. I got to sort of engineer this situation that, that may well have occurred anyway and, and get to watch this in real time. Uh, But on on the other hand, other people have a different emotional response to seeing something like that. You end up empathizing and humanizing uh, the victim of the spider, right? And you Mm -hmm. think, oh, what a horrible thing to happen. What a horrible experience to have to go through.
0: Yeah, totally. So I, I have no proof of that, of a correlation there, but I do wonder about that. I feel like that could possibly be playing some role. Hmm. Um, We end up siding with the prey animals
1: uh, as opposed to the the, the predators. Because that's the other way I always think about spiders in my home or even like a centipede in the home. Mm -hmm. I think, good, you're doing the Lord's work, sir, Uh, or madam. (laughs) Keep keep at it.
0: Probably madam for a spider, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, true. But anyway, so Vetter concludes by saying, despite the assumption that entomologists would extend warm feelings toward spiders because of their habituation to arthropods in general, arachnophobia does occur in some members of our profession. For these people, two more legs makes a big difference. (laughs) Why is it the number of legs? That's the thing that people consistently call out as disliking about spiders, like, uh uh-uh, too many legs. But they like a ladybug, it's only got two less.
1: You know, I was thinking about this. This this may have no connection, but um, we're putting together some notes for an upcoming e- edition of our, our Friday night show, uh, Weird House Cinema, where we talk about weird films. And, was, and I started thinking about a, a genre of film, subgenre uh, that entails uh, crawling disembodied hands mm-hmm. and how spider-like they are. Uh, and I and, But I began to wonder, like, which... Like, which is the predominant fear? Or maybe it's more on an individual level. Is it that the disembodied hand is like a spider? Or is it that the spider is in some way kind of like a human hand?
0: Hmm.
1: You know, something in the way that it's often bunched together, you know, in a way that you, you, you typically won't see with uh, with insect
0: legs? Yes. Well, you see – you see spiders kind of working things with their legs in a way that you don't usually see insects doing. I mean, I guess sometimes you kind of do, but Mm -hmm. I feel like insects are more likely to manipulate things with their pincers. You can really see a spider using the tips of its legs like fingers to like roll something up. Yeah. Creepy.
1: Yeah. (laughs) All right. Uh, Why don't we take another break? And when we come back, we'll discuss another award
0: winner. All right, we're back. Robert, I got to admit, this next study, I wonder if they are drawing a, a, a spurious correlation.
1: <laughs> yeah, I i had a hard time with this one, uh, but it was their psychology prize. Uh, so we're, we're going to discuss it. It is Eyebrows Cue Grandiose Narcissism <laughs> by Miranda Giacomin and Nicholas O'Rourke, published in the Journal of Personality back in May 2018. All right, let's hear it. So the basic idea is this. OK, narcissists can be charming, but narcissists are often, uh, you know, in many cases, horrible people, best avoided. Uh, as such, it pays to be able to identify them. Past studies have linked viewing a person's personal appearance as a means of determining narcissistic qualities. And this study uh, looked to isolate the exact facial features and eyebrows became the, the focal point in this particular study. It's interesting. I mean,
0: obviously, people do. You could say fairly or unfairly, but I mean, certainly, at least most of the time, unfairly judge other people's character by the way they look. I wouldn't have expected eyebrows to be the most salient thing here.
1: Yeah, I I didn't either. I mean, they make they make an interesting case. Uh, Here's the basic summary. In study one, we explored the face's features using a variety of manipulations, ultimately finding that accurate judgments of grandiose narcissism particularly depend on a person's eyebrows. In studies 2A through 2C, we identified eyebrow distinctiveness, thickness, Density as the primary characteristic supporting these judgments. Finally, we confirmed the eyebrows' importance in studies 3A and 3B by measuring how much perceptions of narcissism changed when swapping narcissist and non narcissist eyebrows between
0: faces. So, at least according to their conclusion, Eyebrows are not just something that people use to conclude that someone else is narcissistic, but to some extent, are accurate identifiers. Yeah, which
1: again, I I I just found I read this and I was thinking, could this could this possibly be right? Because when I think of big bushy eyebrows, I think of uh, well, natural big bushy eyebrows. I think of say actor Peter Gallagher for some reason. <laughs> like he instantly comes to mind as having like big, full, beautiful eyebrows. But at the same time, I don't, I mean, I don't know enough about Peter Gallagher to really judge him one way or the other, but I don't think Narcissist, I don't look at him and think, oh, there's a Narcissist right there. I was trying to think, what do I know him from? He was in that spy movie with uh, Bill Murray, and then he's been in uh, like a million TV shows.
0: Oh, he's in Mr. Deeds. A great, great film.
1: Is that an <laughs> eight movie? No. <laughs> okay. What am I thinking of Dunstan chick. We should keep all this. he tends to not play narcissist like you'd think if if his eyebrows were, were 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 cueing us in to narcissism and he was legitimately narcissist a narcissist himself, like he would play a lot of narcissists
0: on the screen. I know what I realize. I know him from American Beauty in which I think he does play a narcissist, but also I think that movie is narcissistic
1: oh, okay <laughs> um. Now, now speaking of of movies, the other thing I think of when I think of big bushy eyebrows are the extreme eyebrows that the Mintats boast in David Lynch's Dune. Um, Now, I don't tend to think of, of the Mintats as especially narcissistic, but I guess it doesn't really make any sense because those are like clearly just added to the character to give them
0: some sort of distinctive visual flair for the viewer. Surely, Thufir Hawat has uh, has appropriately gone through ego death in order to become the human computer. Yeah, Who, who's playing Thufir Hawat in the new one? It's uh, Stephen McKinley
1: Henderson. Um, he was most recently, I believe, in that uh, that Hulu series Devs. He's he's really good. I'm looking forward to checking out his performance.
0: What do I... oh, I know him. Oh, he's great. Yeah. Yeah, he's a wonderful actor. I I was trying to remember what I recently saw him in. I think he, he has a small part in Lady Bird.
1: Ah. Yeah, well, I don't know if he's going to... I don't think he's going to have giant eyebrows in the now-delayed uh, film adaptation of Dune. But the thing is, now that it's delayed a year, they've got time to go in and digitally add crazy eyebrows to all the Mintats. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, back, back to the study here. So... They used neutral expression portraits of 39 students at the University of Toronto, 26 females, 13 males, 32 white, 7 non-white, average age 21, and the 39 subjects took a standardized narcissistic personality test. Then 28 virtual volunteers looked at the portraits and rated them on a scale from one, not narcissistic at all, to eight, extremely narcissistic. They also flipped the images upside down, as this has been shown to allow humans to better focus on particular features of the face rather than the face as a whole. And the eyebrows, according to the study, were always the giveaway. Distinct eyebrows were more likely to accurately identify narcissists.
0: The inversion of the head thing is making me think of one of the most hilarious effects we've ever talked about on the show, which is the Margaret Thatcher effect, where when you flip a head upside down, you can invert the eyes and the mouth so that like they are actually opposite of the orientation of the head, but people don't notice it when they're looking at the head upside down. <laughs> <laughs> you, yeah. you should look this up if you've never seen it before. It's really funny.
1: Now, obviously, the main purpose of eyebrows is to keep sweat, water, debris out of your eye sockets. Um, but, of course, the human face is also, as we've discussed many times, a communications array. So we, we can't dismiss the communicative qualities here. It, it, it may play into dog eyebrows, even, as a 2019 University of Portsmouth study found that human preferences for expressive brows may have influenced selection
0: in domestic dog breeds. Oh, okay. Does your dog have have nice eyebrows? He has the most heavenly eyebrows (laughs) they're very bushy and they are very expressive see there you go
1: now, also, as pointed out in a 2018 University of York study published in Nature, Ecology and Evolution, highly mobile eyebrows in humans uh, can be used to express a wide array of emotions that may have been key to human survival. Uh, they, they might even be key to our ability to empathize and identify with the emotions of others. So, you know, think about like all the things you can say just with your eyebrows, all the even subtle um, uh, communicative cues you can pick up on with eyebrows. Sure. So fair enough. We, we can imagine how more distinctive eyebrows might accentuate these communications. But how would that be linked to a personality disorder? Uh, you know, again, it's, it's, it's the fact that they're distinctive, thickness and density. Um, in, in another experiment, they also gave narcissistic individuals new eyebrows. This was the eyebrow swap thing and tested them out on people. And they found that they did rate them as less narcissistic and putting more distinctive eyebrows on less narcissistic people produced the opposite effect. Uh, So it all leads to the big question. Do narcissists have particular uh, morphological characteristics?
0: I guess this is the part I'd be more skeptical about than the idea that people think they can identify narcissists through certain facial characteristics. I'd be more surprised if it were true that they that they actually accurately were finding correlations there with facial characteristics. I guess it's not impossible, but I feel like I'd need to see really good evidence of that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess another thing to keep in mind is like, this is a study that was asking people about narcissism in images of people like, is this a narcissist? Is that a narcissist? Mm-hmm. And I feel like for the most part, this is one of just many questions we may ask about people that we encounter, you know, right? Uh, it's probably not your primary uh, question regarding an individual like narcissist or not a narcissist. I don't, I don't know that maybe that's just me. Um because ultimately, it comes down to then to like, how would this work? What would be the tie? You know, obviously, there's, there's not like this, like a, the, the personality disorder would make your eyebrows grow more bushy, right? Um, and it would have to be something more in terms of like it. It, changed the, it, it affects the way that you interact with the world and, that, and the way that you're received, and that ends up nurturing a sense of uh, narcissism. Uh, I don't know. Po-
0: possibly. I mean, you could say that from like a developmental personality way. I mean, I guess you could – Though, again, this is one of those things that seems very difficult to believe. I guess you could try to say that there's some correlated like genetic component that's like deeper back that happens to have both random effects, like happens to give you more distinctive eyebrows and also happens to make you more narcissistic. But again, uh, it seems kind of hard to believe that.
1: Yeah. I mean, they they bring up the idea of messing with your eyebrows, grooming your eyebrows and how, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, they basically they said, quote, though narcissism did not significantly relate to eyebrow grooming here. Grooming mediated how grandiosity related to perceived narcissism when controlling distinctiveness and fem- femininity. And previous research found that eyebrow plucking relates to women's narcissism. But I don't know. That doesn't really, uh, you know. Provide a, a firm answer for me, like what what we're seeing uh, when we see eyebrows that are somehow cueing us into narcissism. Like I, f- I feel like I can I can look at a photograph of someone who I either know or believe to have narcissistic qualities, mm-hmm. and I can often lean into this interpretation. I can say, well, I guess those eyebrows are pretty wild and thick. You know, or uh, well, those eyebrows are really well maintained. You know, the, I guess there are there are things I can I can then pinpoint if I'm prompted, but I, I just I, I don't I just have a hard time with this one. I have to admit I have a, I have a hard time seeing the eyebrows as a window into the narcissistic soul.
0: Yeah, I guess it's one of those things where it just it just seems kind of like surface level implausible to me. But I guess I don't know. It's one of those where if uh, if I saw more evidence, then I guess I'd have to accept it. But
1: yeah, uh, I mean, I, mean I, I do have to you know give credit to the, the, the whole argument of the eyebrows being key to the way we communicate with people, you mm-hmm. know, like like in ways that we often don't think about, uh, you know, unless you're you know, just really obsessed with eyebrows. Like, you know, we are moving our eyebrows around a lot. They are they are d- doing a lot to communicate how we feel about ourselves and about other people to the world. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, on, on another hand, why not the eyebrow? Sure. We'd love to hear from, uh, from listeners on this one. What's your relationship with eyebrows? <laughs> Do you see eyebrows as a, as, as a, as a clue to someone's uh, narcissistic qualities? Um, I, we'd, we'd love to hear from
0: you. Are you a grandiose narcissist? Do you have really distinctive eyebrows? Yeah, let us know. <laughs> <laughs> Measure them.
1: All right. Shall we move on to the the final prize that we're going to discuss on this episode?
0: Sure. Uh, this one will be pretty quick, but I thought this was kind of fun. So do you remember earlier this year when we were talking about snake pits? And in that episode, mm. I discussed research on the vocalizations of snakes like king cobras, how they're known, in fact, not just to hiss, but to actually growl. Yes, And one of the tests conducted uh, in that study about uh, king cobras and related snakes growling actually involved getting a snake to inhale helium and talk like Donald Duck. (laughs) And I thought that was a pretty great experiment. But it turns out this is a broader genre of scientific weirdness, as proven by this year's Ig Nobel winner in acoustics. So this prize went to Stephen A. Reber Takeshi Nishimura. Judith Yanish, Mark Robertson, and W. Tecumseh Fitch. And the, uh, the study was called A Chinese Alligator in Heliox, Formant Frequencies in a Crocodilian in the Journal of Experimental Biology in 2015. Uh, so they, the authors here start by saying that crocodilians are among the most vocal non-avian reptiles. Not a lot of reptiles really make, you know, voice sounds. But crocodiles do. Crocodilians do. Uh, Both males and females tend to produce sounds called bellows. So they'll kind of... And this happens all year, but especially during mating season. And the question is, what purpose do these bellows serve? Scientists aren't exactly sure, but they think they might be auditory advertisements of body size. So if you're a crocodilian trying to mate, you want to be large. The authors write, quote, relative size differences strongly affect courtship and territorial behavior in crocodilians. Now, in mammals and birds, it has been documented that vocalizations are sometimes an honest signal. And that's a term in biology, an honest signal of body size, meaning an advertisement that is basically true. It's hard to fake. Because body size is related to what kinds of frequencies you can make when you issue a vocalization, uh, specifically with reference to what are known as formant frequencies or vocal tract resonances. And these are like sort of uh, peak frequencies that you hit, say, when you're making certain kinds of vowel-like sounds. Now, where does this study fit into everything I've just said? Well, the authors here say that formant frequencies have never been documented before in a reptile, uh, in a non-avian reptile. And they say, quote, formants do not seem to play a role in the vocalizations of frogs and toads. Uh, technically, they're called anurans, but that means frogs and toads. They write, quote, We tested performance in crocodilian vocalizations by using playbacks to induce a female Chinese alligator, or alligator sinensis, to bellow in an airtight chamber. During vocalizations, the animal inhaled either normal air or a helium-oxygen mixture, known as heliox, in which the velocity of sound is increased. Although Heliox allows normal respiration, it alters the formant distribution of the sound spectrum. An acoustic analysis of the calls showed that the source signal components remained constant under both conditions, but an upward shift of high energy frequency bands was observed in Heliox. We conclude that these frequency bands represent formants. So according to their theoretical framework, they think this is a good sign that actually what crocodiles are doing what crocodilians are doing with these bellowing sounds is actually advertising body size via these formant frequencies in their vocalizations. And, uh, Oh, and also because they say, okay, so we've observed these formant frequencies playing a role in like mating calls in birds. And if it's correct that they're doing a similar thing in crocodilians and because birds and crocodilians share a common ancestor with all dinosaurs, they say, quote, a better understanding of their vocal production systems may also provide insight into the communication of extinct archosaurians.
1: So it's actually a really interesting study. Uh, I guess if, if you ask the question, why is it funny? I guess it's the the helium giving helium right. to a
0: um, eh. you know, crocodile. Eh. <laughs> <laughs> I also I found it, in the study there was a pretty funny illustration of the experimental setup that showed the crocodiles in the sealed chambers either breathing air or breathing the oxygen helium mixture
1: it is it is kind of a a humorous illustration i don't know why but it's it's like a nice illustration it has uh-huh. it's very colorful uh, uh, the the crocodile looks looks realistic it's not a cartoon crocodile but i don't know it, it does look a little awkward in there
0: it just makes me wonder how many different studies have made other animals inhale helium to see what their voices sound like so we got snakes and we got crocodiles now where where else has this happened <laughs> Or not crocodile. Sorry, this was an alligator. I guess a, a crocodilian. Sorry if I've been loose with that terminology.
1: Uh, well, maybe. We'll, we'll have to come back and do an episode on helium and discuss it. Okay, I'll meet you there. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, like I say, we're not going to cover all the Ig Nobel Prize winners for 2020. We're just covering these four. If you want to check out the full list of winners, again, go to improbable.com. And you will get to check out the list, see links to the studies. Um, it's it's always worth a read, just to see what they're they're highlighting uh, from uh, you know from from, uh, from recent or not so recent uh, scientific uh, studies.
0: Yeah, give them a look. There there was another one that definitely raised my eyebrow this year, and it was about uh, it was about looking into economic data via mouth to mouth yes. kissing.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, that one looked good. There's also one about hitmen. Did you see that one? Yes.
0: Yeah. It wasn't uh, really a study. It was just like a news well, yeah, report, it wasn't a study. but it was a funny news report. Basically, uh it was a story from China where someone had taken out a murder contract that was just repeatedly subcontracted down to like five or six layers of of different people who were hired for successively smaller sums and then the murder was never done.
1: Yeah, it's it, it sounds like it would make a great Cohen
0: Brothers film, you know. Right. Like each one gets cold feet and they're like, okay. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Until like
1: basically, yeah, they're just being offered so little money. It just doesn't get done. All right. Well, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you know where to find us. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and wherever that happens to be. We just ask that you rate, review, and subscribe. You can always go to stufftoblowyourmind.com and that will take you right to our iHeart listing. Uh, and you'll also see a, a button there somewhere on the page for store. If you click on that, you'll go to our t-shirt store. Where you can buy a t-shirt or a sticker or a bag with our logo on it or some manner of monster. Uh, pretty fun little place. We're hopefully you're going to get some new designs in there soon. Let's see what else. Oh yeah, our former co-host Christian has a, a Kickstarter going right now uh, for Corridor Magazine issue number one. Uh, it's going to a whole bunch of, um, of cool weird art uh, short fiction uh, comics essays uh, all together if you're uh, if you want to f- follow a, back a cool project just go to kickstarter and look up corridor
0: you're in there aren't you
1: yeah, I've got a little story, uh, like a sci-fi story with sharks in it. Nice. Uh, that I, I think listeners will enjoy. Uh, so uh, yeah, and, but then also just a whole host of other uh, richly talented people, and it's uh, from the images I've seen, it's just going to be gorgeous cover to cover. So uh, that that Kickstarter is ending soon. So if you want to be a part of it, uh, go look it up now.
0: Definitely. Big thanks as always to our excellent audio producer Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello. You can email us at contact at Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.